So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. Little did I know that when I started Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, I would eventually talk about the late 60s gothic romantic vampire TV soap opera Dark Shadows, a show that I knew almost nothing about, but which has now stolen probably hundreds of hours of my time. <laughs> Though the show ran for only four years and most of its original viewers are now geriatric, it is a franchise that will somehow not die with his enduring cult following and periodic revivals that threaten to recur even to this day. Our special guest for this episode will be one of the stars of the show, Catherine Lee Scott. But first, I'll chat with today's co-hosts as we become filled with terror by her impending arrival. Lawrence, introduce yourself. My name is Lawrence Ware, and I'm a recovering vampire. And brought on specially for this episode, because it's really hard to find somebody who's watched a thousand episodes of a show. Hi, my name is uh, Sean Cooney, here in cloudy Denver, Colorado, hearing the dogs howl in the distance with a little snifter of brandy. It's always the same howl. They have one, one sound cue for the howl. What in the world possessed you to watch thousands of episodes of this particular show? Why, why do you love this show so much? When I was a kid, probably in third or fourth grade, my imagination started going crazy and I needed to see some horror stuff. I read all the Goosebumps, read all those young adult horror stuff, and I just needed some more. And my mom was like, nah, uh, you're not reading Stephen King. We're not going to get into that yet. So. Instead, she introduced me to this culty, spooky, horror, maybe horror adjacent, I don't know exactly, show Dark Shadows uh, that she had watched when she was a kid. And it was perfect timing because they were just doing the re-release on DVD. So we actually watched them as they came out with each collection on DVD. We'd go out and get them. And then for the next couple of months, we'd watch that. And by the time I was in middle school, we'd gotten through the entire series and one of the best memories I have. Wow. Well, so the reason I chose to have us do this is because I got an offer to interview Catherine Lee Scott and I didn't know anything about it. I asked Sarah Lynn. Sarah Lynn is supposed to be our soap opera person. I did a soap opera episode and like watched an episode of this like a year ago and it seemed okay, but like I'm not gonna watch 500 more of these. Like it just, it seemed to move too Slowly, it had all the bad things about like old Star Trek, just any any TV from the 1960s. Yeah, I would have been the right age. I would have been like 11 or something when this, I guess, 82 came on public TV or I don't know. I would see like occasional bits of Doctor Who and stuff at that point. But I don't remember this ever coming up. I remember my mother saying whenever we talked about soap operas, my parents were kind of snooty about that. My mother would never watch a soap opera, but said she did watch Dark Shadows. That that was the only one. I feel like I'm connecting with my deceased for a decade elderly mother, but she would have been in her 80s now. And that is the typical, I think, the median age of the, you know, first generation Dark Shadows fan. And so I was wondering, I was surprised that, you know, so I had asked uh, Sarah Lynn, she said, you know, no, she's not going to put the time into this. I'd asked Al because he's into that Doctor Who and the big Finnish audio productions. He hadn't watched any of it. Finally figured out, Lawrence, what, what's your, that you, you actually had a history with this. I mean, 
I don't know why I started watching it. I think it was just something that I think my mom watched or something. I don't know. So I'm deeply fascinated in horror. Like anyone who listens to the show knows that I'm like a big horror guy. I love horror. Even though I don't like a lot of gory horrors, like I went to go watch Evil Dead Rise, and a little over the top for me. Um, Evil Dead is not my thing, but I love horror, like like gothic. I love vampires. I love all that stuff. And so, though I was not seeking out Dark Shadows, I happened to come across an episode of it, and I was like, "This is interesting. It's horror-ish. It's interesting." And so I kept going with it. And then I realized it's also kind of soap opery. So I like I would fast forward to the stuff I don't want to watch, but I was always intrigued by it. So I just kind of got sucked into it. And lo and behold, years later, I turns out I watched all that shit. And it's kind of good. It's kind of it's very cheesy, but it's kind of good and very interesting. So it's just something that kind of appealed to me in a natural kind of way. Yeah. So I, if I had stumbled on this. As a kid, I don't know why I would have stayed on it just because the the look of the show, the aesthetic of the show, yeah. like immediately would make me say, no, this is, you know, something from another time. But wait a minute. But see, I watched this. I also watched the Munsters, love the Munsters. I also watched Adam's family, loved Adam's family. So really all that stuff is right in my wheelhouse. This is absolutely my kind of aesthetic. But is there something fundamentally different about what really is a soap opera from the Munsters and the Adams Family, which are sitcoms and in fact have laugh tracks. And I don't know, maybe it was just like which syndicated channels they happen to be on that I did not actually stumble on. Maybe I would have gotten hooked as a kid, but it seems like there was something more I had to, at least right now, that I had to adapt to. I was able to do so pretty quickly. Originally, it was just like, yeah, I started for the soap opera episode watching the first in the Barnabas Collins storyline, which is sort of where it's episode one, according to the streaming services. Yeah. But it was clearly right in the middle of something. And I didn't like that. And I was kind of trying to rationalize it that, well, you know, if you read Spider-Man, you probably don't read Spider-Man number one. Like maybe you do, maybe you go back there, but like you could just jump in with a comic book, jump in anywhere. And I've done that with many comic books over the, over the years. And so it, it should be no different. This has been acknowledged as a good starting point, but after talking to Sean on the phone, so I just put up something on Facebook who's actually watched all of Dark Shadows. Sean responded, a partially examined life listener. So we know you'll have a, a philosophical take here. Also, Sean, you said you're a amateur horror novelist. Is that right? Or I am, yes. I've been published a handful of times working on a novel right now. Very cool. It's actually, it's pretty funny. Honestly, Dark Shadows has always been kind of in the background of my head, you know, because it was such a formative part of my life. But up until the last month, going back through the show a little bit, listening to some of the, the audio dramas that mm-hmm. Kathleen Lee Scott did and just watching the movie and the Tim Burton movie again and all this stuff, I didn't realize how formative it was and how deeply impacting it was for me and how it really influenced my taste. And Lawrence, while you're not really into the whole gore, evil, dead thing, my wheelhouse is just all of it. Like, I'll, I'm not really into the whole, like, torture porn aspect of, like, Hostel and Saw and all that, but really anything in the horror wheelhouse, I'm, I'm on board for. And it just kind of awoke something in me. I was like, wow, this is exactly where all of this came from. And finding it in my writing too, it's uh, it's been kind of interesting. It awakened the beast within. That's what it did. The darkness. Yeah. The shadows. So yeah. I, I think I might've talked to Sean on the phone first before I even agreed finally to do the interview. Cause like I didn't, I knew I didn't want to do it entirely by myself because I hadn't seen very much of the show. I hadn't seen any of the show, you know, just the one episode. Since then, since I, I scheduled a few months out, I have gotten through 
I'm nearing episode 500. So <laughs> I was, I've been <laughs> that's treating a, that's it. That's a long journey. Right, it is. It is. I've been treating it like a podcast. So I've like, when I watch it on my computer, I watch it at a faster speed because it moves so slowly moment to moment. Anyway, you often can do things in the background. It is made for that. It is very yeah, dialogue really. oriented. So like when I'm walking the dog, just like a podcast, I will put Tubi on my phone is the app that unfortunately most of it, the way it's on Freevee, which is Amazon and Tubi, which is its own thing. And they both have ads. Like there was a little bit that was on the NBC, the Peacock network, but that was like just a little bit. And so almost mm-hmm. everything. So I found that Tubi had a few, maybe one ad per episode or something. And you can just kind of, especially for some reason, if you listen on mobile, then the ads are shorter. If you watch it on the TV, then it's like might be four ads in a row and it's whatever. So yes, I was just listening to this in every spare moment, uh, listening or watching. <laughs> and I really dug like the hand, they only have like a handful of music clips, but they're all killer. They're all like, I really like the music. Interesting. Now I have, I don't have it with me. One year around Christmas time, I went to Best Buy. You know, Best Buy used to have, they might still have it. They used to have these things where things would go on sale, like these like, like box collections. Like I bought a Clint Eastwood box collection one year and I bought like an action box collection, had like different Van Damme movies in it, like Sudden Death and Bloodsport. Anyway, so every year at Best Buy, these like box collections would go on. And one year I saw like the entire Dark Shadows collection on, it was not Blu-ray, <laughs> it was DVD for like, I want to say like $75, like the entire series. That's a steal. So that's like a, do- a dollar per disc, right? Or something. I, like, I snatched that shit up so quickly because it was a great deal. And of course, no one was looking for it. No one was going to buy that shit. Only me and maybe Sean would buy something like that. Like, that's it. Nobody else would buy that. But I saw that, I snatched that shit up, and I still have it. So I didn't go back and watch the entire series, of course. That is way too much of an undertaking. But I went back and jumped, you know, jumped around a little bit, looked at some of my favorite episodes and whatnot. But that was a killer deal for me. Like, shout out to Best Buy. I don't know how they're still in business. So did it hold up for you, Lawrence, Watching, rewatching bits of it? I mean, yes and no. So it's a little bit more corny than I remember and very theatrical like a one set stage play essentially like there's a stair there yes this this vast house that we only ever see four rooms of or you know maybe they add a little bit they finally got to the tower room and i you know so it's maybe it's up to seven or eight rooms now but it took a while that stuff didn't hold up as well but as far as like the campiness and the gothic nature of it absolutely held up it gave me what i wanted now i will admit it's a little slower than i remember when I was a kid, I remember that shit. Like, what's going to happen? Barnabas, holy shit. What's he going to do now? But like now, <laughs> I realize, wow, they've kind of paced it a little bit. They're taking their time on some stuff. I will say almost assuredly, not many people today would want to watch that. I don't think that they would want to go back to that. Unless they already have a cult relationship. We should mention the revivals and things. So I didn't realize that the two movies that came out, 70 and 71... Is that right? Well, I know one was 71. I don't yes. Know They're both pretty close to 71. You know, Dan Curtis also, you know, the guy who did the original show, it has most of the cast still playing the same characters for the most part, although there'd been some people that had left. So House of Dark Shadows is, is a retelling of the main storyline, but it's super gory. And I was listening to some other podcasts talk about how like all these kids who like the TV show, 
watched this movie where the show created the reluctant vampire trope, which is now in Twilight. It's in everything. Oh, I'm a monster, but I don't want to hurt people. That is what vampire, why they remain interesting. And I don't know, maybe it was in something else. I'm sure other monster movies, like right from Frankenstein or whatever, you, the original stories, there's, if there's any development of character in the monster at all, they don't want to be killing people. It's There's some tussling. So it wasn't entirely a new thing, but it really, I think, helped establish that. You don't get that in the film whatsoever. And so, yeah, I guess a lot of people, do you guys, Lawrence, does this, is the film have the right amount of blood for you? Or do you even, was this even on your radar? I didn't care about that, honestly. Like, nowadays, people want to see the kills and, you know, you know, and that's fine. This is essentially, Sean, when did Texas Chainsaw Mastery come out? Is that 74? 74. Yeah. 74. So this show is essentially happening before all that. And so those things, particularly Halloween and definitely Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is when you really become concerned about seeing the kills and seeing the blood and seeing the gore. Like those films really change the course of horror. And I'm sure Sean could say more about that than I could. But those really changed like what people were expecting to see. So this is much more in that old school 1960s horror movie kind of vibe where it's about the ambiance and it's about the gothic nature and the storytelling. And so that's really what I came to really love about it. Because if I want to see gore or once he kills, I'm going to go somewhere else. You know, this is not going to give me that. And I think that's part of the reason why Tim Burton's film didn't succeed that well, is because it showed that stuff. And that's just not the spirit of the, of the show, at least not in my mind. And I will say also, this is doing with drama what the Munsters and the Adams family did with comedy, like they're still kind of playing in the same wheelhouse, just that two of them are comedies and, and one is a drama, but it's still kind of doing the same thing. So I'd actually, I hadn't seen them until we started preparing for this. And I watched the first one, watched some scenes from the second one, and I was surprised by how different in tone it was, but how similar the storylines kept. It just kind of felt like a retreading, but they wanted to do it in a more like just a more visceral way, like to get away, get away from the TV censorship, which I guess that was Dan Curtis's vision of it. More power to him. Do what you want. But I definitely agree with Lawrence. The ambiance and the serialization of it really was the thing that kind of drew me in and kept me there when I was younger. I imagine that's what it was like for the kids in the late 60s running home from school to check out Dark Shadows right after school. And that's it's funny because that's actually the thing that led to it ending was because the show, at least, was because these kids took their parents to see it in theaters and they're like, oh, my God, what are you watching? This this <laughs> bloody vampire, you know, like getting staked and running around with crosses. What What's going on here? And so that actually had a little bit of what came to its downfall, which thousand or 1200 episodes that had as good of a run as, as they could have, I guess, especially with like the reboots, too. They definitely capture like the essence of it, but there's just something about the, I don't want to say cheesy, but like the theatricality of it all, like the single take, the mistakes of being in there, the original like graphics that they were able to use before there was any kind of digital interplay there. Just so revolutionary and interesting, especially if you watch it before you see everything else like I did, which I feel like I'm definitely part of a very small minority of people who, I mean, I'm 30, I'm about to be 30 at least, and I managed to somehow squeeze this in before I got to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or The Exorcist or any of these newer, more intense horror 
movies. And the story of it all really just captivated me. And then I went on to find out that, hey, these stories, they're just recycling or at least rebranding some of these old-timey narratives. All right, let's continue with more of this after the interview, but here's Catherine. Nice to see you all. So we already did some introductions and things. Let's just get right into the questions for you. So one of the things we're interested on this podcast to figure out, like, why do we consume the things we do? And so cult properties as a part of the pop of the past is an enduring interest to us. Can you talk about being a participant in this ongoing cult property? We are, of course, talking about Big Seamus, Little Seamus, the TV show that you're most famous for. <laughs> would love to hear that. <laughs> just, um, just from the wiki page. I'm very curious do, about do that. Do any but. of you know who Helen Forrest is? No. Okay. Well, she was what's known as a canary. She was a girl singer with the big band era. And she was with Artie Shaw and Benny Goodman and everybody. And somebody said, what was it like being part of that big band era? And she said, if I'd known it was an era, I would have paid more attention. <laughs> so there's your answer. It was my very first job on Dark Shadows. I was thrilled to be working. I had no idea that getting a job was difficult because that one just seemed to fall into my lap. Not that I ever took it for granted. I realized I was a lucky girl from day one. But I've always been surprised. It's now 57 years. As a matter of fact, today is the 57th anniversary of meeting Jonathan Frid Barnabas on Dark Shadows. Wow. Now, I would not know that, except that somebody emailed it to me this morning on my Facebook page. Otherwise, I would never have known that. So I don't know if that goes anywhere to answering your question. You know, some of the folks that were on it, okay, it's a thing I did long ago if I'm invited to something. But you are one of the torchbearers for this, that you're, you're writing books, you're editing things, you're like very involved. It's sort of become, you know, at least one of the main facets of your ongoing career. And I have to say that that's true. I was on the very first day, and I have a feeling that part of that has to do with the role that I played. I think that Maggie Evans was the moral center of Dark Shadows, if you think about it. The show is really about outsiders. Almost everybody in the show was or felt like an outsider. Uh, That would include Carolyn Stoddard and most definitely Jonathan Frid. He was a 200-year-old vampire falling in love with a small-town waitress. Clearly, everybody on that show, the little boy, David Hennessy, the role that he played, I think everybody felt like an outsider. And and there was Maggie Evans, you know, the waitress who became the governess. I think she was the moral center. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I would agree. I would definitely. Agree. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that almost from the beginning, when I think of, you know, the way I interacted with the other actors and, and all the rest of it, I always felt this terrific responsibility with Dark Shadows. It's an odd sort of thing. But yes, I did feel that way. You mentioned Jonathan Fred and the kind of transition because pre-episode 202 with his introduction or post, I guess, with Barnabas and then pre with all these competing storylines, you have the Phoenix, you have Victoria's lineage, you have all these different questions that are brought up. And then a lot of those kind of go by the wayside with Barnabas being introduced and then the show gaining so much popularity. And then we get back to those kind of interesting beginning of the show questions. 
What do you think really made the show take off with Jonathan Frid's introduction? Do you think it had to do with like the novelty of the vampire? I think there were a lot of factors. Probably the most significant factor is that Dan early on, as a matter of fact, with the very first episode, which was very Jane Eyre, Mm. was drawing on classic literature. So we did the picture of Dorian Gray. David Selby and I did Turn of the Screw, essentially. And I think that that was introduced very early on. So I think that that was a big draw. I don't think that children or even housewives watching the show picked up on all of that. But I think that they responded to the quality of the storytelling. It was also the casting. I think the casting was just terrific. And the fact that the writers, of course, which always happens in soap opera, started writing to the actors' strengths. I think the elements of time travel, the fact that we introduced werewolves and witches and vampires, and so many of these paranormal characters, that was another draw. We're dealing with children, many of whom probably grew up on fables and fairy tales, Grimm's fairy tales, which are really violent. and Extremely violent. I mean, A Little Red Riding Hood, Rumpelstiltskin. We're talking about children who started watching when they were seven, eight, nine, ten years old. So I think that that element was another reason why it took off. And I've always felt that because I've got so many letters over the years from children who are now grown up saying, you saw me through a very difficult time of my life. I saw Judy Bloom last night. Judy Bloom, who wrote all of those wonderful YA books, God, Can You Hear Me? It's Margaret. And I think that she understands that same element that children, it's not easy being a kid, to quote Judy Bloom. And whatever happened to a kid at school that day on the playground or the teacher gave him a hard time or whatever, he was home on the couch at four o'clock watching Dark Shadows and at least got bitten by a vampire that day. It was pure escapism. I think it took kids into another world, another time period. It was just a complete escape. And I think that was another big draw. So I think I maybe named three or four things that probably contributed to the popularity and the reason why the show took off. The secret sauce of it, if you will. You know, right now we're in like a peak TV moment. Like there's a lot of television shows that are trying to do what Dark Shadows did. Really, I'm thinking about the stuff that Mike Flanagan is doing. So I don't know if you're aware of that, but like The Haunting of Hill House, Blair Manor, Midnight Mass, like those are the kinds of things that are trying to do what Dark Shadow did so well. You've already told us about the, like the secret sauce of the show or, or why the show blew up, but what do you think that TV shows nowadays could learn from Dark Shadows? Like, What did you guys have that these shows are trying to get to? I think some of these shows are achieving that. With Dark Shadows, it's the mix, a perfect mix of sci-fi, horror, fantasy, and and romance. All of those elements. Had it been nothing but horror, they would have dealt with, I think, a very limited audience. If it had been just romance, it would have been another slice of an audience. But the fact that it united all of those things, the central story of Dark Shadows always no matter how many different storylines we told, it was the love triangle with the vampire, the witch, and, uh, and me. <laughs> that really was the heart of that show. It's so unexpected, given what you were cast as, that you were just the friend who's at the diner and chatting amiably <laughs> and, and, you know, a side character. And, oh, maybe, maybe Joe won't pick you. And then within a year, you're getting to do all these sort of histrionics 
and your mm-hmm. memory is gone and just acting like you're completely drugged <laughs> out. Just these, can you say anything about that sort of journey that you thought maybe you were signing up for one thing? It all began the very first day that Jonathan came on the show. And I, I've said this before, that it was remarkable that Jonathan did not grow into the character of Barnabas Collins. He came on the very first show, fully formed. We were down on the set and I was with Louis Edmonds and Joan Bennett and Jonathan came and there he was with the cape, with the spiked hair, with the ring, with the wolf's head cane. He was fully formed and he had that because he'd been classically trained. So he had that voice, that sort of transatlantic voice that uh, <laughs> we call it the 1930s movie star voice that, 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 you know, that way of speaking perfectly for Barnabas so when he arrived as the cousin from England he was just fully formed and the very first scene that I had with Jonathan if you remember I'm in the cafe it's been a long day I'm closing up I washed out the Silux pot I've I put on my sweater or coat, whatever, and picked up my handbag, taking the last look around. And then I see this stranger at the door, at the window. And instead of sending him on his way, I invite him in. I take my coat off. (laughs) I make another pot of coffee. And the two of us talk. Now, there's Maggie, who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, who I always based my character initially on that poem by Carl Sandburg. To me, it was Maggie beat her hands against the bars of a small Indiana town and dreamed of what was down the railroad tracks. To me, that was Maggie Evans, who had no life except her dreams of what could be. Or was she going to work in a diner the rest of her life? Her boyfriend was the fellow that she fancied, Joe, of course. He was enamored of the rich daughter up on the hill. Maggie was looking for a knight in shining armor, and there he appeared. He happened to be a 200-year-old vampire, but that was was something she could learn much later. So I think that Dan saw the chemistry when we did that first scene together, where we were not infatuated with each other, but intrigued, and that there was an almost instantaneous connection between Jonathan and me and Maggie and Barnabas. And I think Dan saw that. And when it came time to play Josette, he had to fight the network on that because I was the first of the actors that played a second character. It was entirely accidental, again, but it worked. And our director, Leela Swift, said, you know, the audience will be confused. And Dan said, no, let's trust the audience. They'll go along with it. And of course, they did. So much of the the show, because we were almost taken off the air after that first 13 weeks, And at the beginning of that next cycle, that's when Jonathan was introduced. And I think that Dan just parlayed what he saw between us. And that's when we started doing the time travel. I've recently been listening to your uh, your book, Return to Collinwood. Um, (laughs) And I I love your story about the accidental playing of Josette, where they have the mannequin, the dummy, essentially. And you're like, oh, that just looks terrible. You know, let me stand in for it. And then you became Josette and you started this probably one of, if not just the storylines, the thing that I remember most about Dark Shadows is how many different characters the actors play. And you went on to play four different characters on this show. I played four distinct characters in four time periods uh, that had almost nothing in common. They were very, very different women. The story about playing Josette 
that was total serendipity. A couple of times, young actors have said, you know, have asked me a question, have I responded? You know, you have to be ready when the opportunity is there. You grab it. Because I was not supposed to be at the studio that day. I, I simply stopped by to pick up some scripts. And when I saw June, the maker, the wardrobe woman, and, and Bob Costello, the producer, working with this clothes dummy, you know, with bits of lace and so on, on a revolving dais with lights on it. And I said, what is it? And he said, well, that's the ghost of Josette. What do you think? And I said, I think it looks like a clothes dummy. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, he, he said, all right, how would you like to step in for the dummy? Now, here's how young actors think. I said, yes. And Vinny Lascalzo did the makeup that was on the dummy, did it on me. And a couple of the actors who were in the show that day saw what I was doing. And they said, are you getting paid? And I said, I hope so. And I, <laughs> and I said, do I get paid extra? And he said, no, you're just standing in for the dummy. You're not saying anything. And that became a joke that Catherine had stood in for the dummy, but not such a dumb thing. It just turned into something really magical for me. And the opportunity to play Josette, do costume drama when you're fresh out of acting school. I mean, what could be better for a young actor? Absolutely. It seems like that kind of classic theatrical training brought a lot to the show because you see the same thing in a theater play where you have many different you know, actors playing different characters. And I can't even think of a single actor on that show that didn't at some point step into a different character's shoes from the parallel timelines to the going back to the 1700s, the 1800s. Did that ever become difficult? I would imagine that's essentially what you're trained for. It is. and But here's the other thing. If you think about it, we were an incredible mix of veteran actors like Mitch Ryan, who was essentially a Shakespearean actor. He'd done 20 years of Shakespeare before he ever got to Broadway and working in regional theater. And Joan Bennett with her career in the movies, Grayson Hall, a stage actor, uh, Thayer David, Humbert, all of them had done years of repertory. These were really New York veteran actors. And then you had these kids, David Selby, Laura Parker, Nancy Barrett, Joel Crothers. We were 19, 20 years old. We just fell right into it. We learned from the veteran actors that we played opposite. And again, what incredible training. It was really remarkable because we were also coming out of the last of live television. We essentially did our show live. I think it's amazing now when people talk about doing live like SNL or whatever. There's no such thing as live television the way we did it. And we had no safety net at all. They had to add the, the special effects while you were doing it. Very often, as the special effects got more intricate, you know, when we were doing blue screen, where I was stepping out of the portrait and Jonathan was in another part of the studio, Laura was giving a voiceover, all three of us were essentially visually in the same scene, but we were in three different locations. It became tougher only because we didn't rehearse the scene. We rehearsed the gag, and that was different because... That's when we were running lines and, and rehearsing on our own while getting makeup done because there was simply no time. We had eight hours from the time we arrived at the studio until we finished the day show, a half hour show. And we actually, the commercials for Palm Olive or Hazel Bishop or whatever, those commercials were fed in as we were working. We would stop at a break 
and they would feed in the commercial and, and then we would start the next scene. You don't do that anymore. I went to see a and a few years ago I was doing a, a soap opera here in New York for, I guess, ABC. And I couldn't believe they were doing several different scenes with an actor from several different episodes. It wasn't in order. It was stop and start. People didn't know their lines. At one point, they had to stop because somebody left their Starbucks in the middle of the, you know. Uh, that would oh my goodness, that's happened. crazy. That would never have happened. I'm upset just listening to it. And we were on air and oh my you made a mistake that was not going to be corrected. If you forgot a name, if you tripped, if you forgot a prop, it was like doing stock. You had to get yourself out of your jam. I want to transition us to talking about your life after Dark Shadows. And I'm very interested in this because I remember seeing you. So I used to watch like a lot of stuff with my mom growing up. And I remember seeing you on Dynasty. <laughs> I remember seeing you on Dallas. And if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, I want to say I saw you on a Star Trek The Next Generation episode. Pretty sure I saw you on there. Right? Uh, not only was I on Star Trek, I was Nuria, you know, leader of my Mentakan people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember you. I remember you. So, so. You know, I'm very lucky. I've done a lot of genre, but I've done some really good genre. Police Squad, uh, you know. with the, Oh, yes, absolutely. With Brothers and Abrams. I love doing that with Leslie Nielsen. I love comedy and mm-hmm. playing Sally Decker in Police Squad and Nuria in Star Trek. And I was in space 1999 wearing an evening gown. I was some tribe of women in outer space who wore evening gowns. Oh, my goodness. It was with uh, Barbara Bain and uh, Marty Landau. I was even in Marvel. What was it called? Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, my goodness. Were you really? Oh, wow. I love that show. Some of that stuff is just really fun to do. Uh, And I have to say, doing Star Trek was really enjoyable. What was life like as an actress after having such a major role on that kind of show that has such a cultural impact? What was it like moving on after that? Well, I moved to Europe. Uh, I moved to Paris right after I did House of Dark Shadows. I worked with the Lambrinet in Providence with John Gielgud and Dirk Bogard. And I did Love Omega in French. Mm. And I moved to London. And I did a lot of theater at uh, Bristol Old Vic and, and in the West End with Stuart and Harvey. I had no problem because unlike some of the other actors, you know, I didn't go to Hollywood. I went to Paris. So I was doing much different work. So I never had that problem. The only problem I had is that I did so much work in France and in England that when I did come back to do a TV series, CBS uh, with Brian Dennehy, I was unknown. Ten years of my career, uh, those credits don't travel. So in a way, when I came back to do, oh, I did two pilots with Tom Selleck that didn't sell. And I did Big Seamus with Brian Dennehy. And I, I did another pilot. I was starting from scratch. Because I imagine that someone doing that now, those credits would travel because we're just so insular now. We live in a different world. Back then, it didn't. And for a while there, I was straddling both worlds. I did a, a series with Powers Booth. I played Annie Reardon in Chandler Town, you know, the Philip Marlowe stories. I did that series. And that was in England. And I did Last Days of Patton with George C. Scott and Murrow, the Edward R. Murrow story, and played Janet Murrow. 
I did those things in England while at the same time coming back and doing things in Los Angeles. So I kind of straddled the two worlds for a while and then things kind of settled down and I did more work in LA. Wow. And I guess to circle back, I want to make sure you plug all the things you want to plug. I'm as much a writer as I am an actor. So while I'm back in New York now and I've done several films and television things, I'm also writing. I write an essay a month almost for AARP, The Ethel, which I love doing. And I've written a number of books, some of them on Dark Shadows, but then I've written five novels. So I'm as much a writer as I am an actor these days. And I love both. I want to say really quickly that I really deeply enjoyed your book, Last Dance at the Savoy. Really oh. deeply enjoyed that book. I don't know if people know that you wrote that or whatnot, but it's a beautiful piece of writing. And then like looking deeper into the fact that you're a writer, like you founded, what was it, Pomegranate Press? Like it's yeah, just I, I founded Pomegranate Press back in 1985. And I've done about maybe 80 books, all nonfiction entertainment, but I've also packaged a lot of books for other companies. I just reissued Marcel Marceau, Master of Mime. I knew Marcel Marceau. That's incredible. And my husband, who was a Time Life photographer, photographed Marcel Marceau for what was to be a Life magazine pictorial. Then it became a book, Marcel Marceau, Master of Mime. So I've just mounted an exhibit at the National Arts Club in New York of the photographs from the book. And then I reissued the book. It just came out this month. And Marcel Marceau's widow, Ansi Coase, a friend, wrote the foreword to the book. In a way, so much of what one does at this stage of life has to do with legacy. And I care deeply about the legacy of Ben Martin and also Marcel Marceau. And the book, Last Dance at the Savoy, of course, was written about my husband. Uh, yes, very moving story. On the Beautiful story. Of LA magazine. And he had progressive supranuclear palsy. So I wrote about caregiving. When you're dealing with somebody who has a progressive illness for which there is no cure, it's quite a different thing because you know that there's an end in sight. It's a different way of living and it's a different way of caring for somebody. It's just, there's not a magic pill or surgery or something that's going to fix things. I just really enjoyed that story and it moved me so much because I dealt with my grandmother who had Alzheimer's. It just touched me. I just really enjoyed that story. I really thank you for that book. It was a beautiful story. Thank you. I'm glad I wrote that. And I've written a couple of other books. Again, I write fiction, but that, of course, was nonfiction. I've written more nonfiction than fiction. But even when you're writing fiction, you're drawing on those experiences, those arenas that you've known. And kind of fun. I love writing mysteries. I'm going to check out some of your mystery writing. I love reading mysteries. I'm going to check that out. I've written several mysteries and I, I write funny. There's a lot of humor in them. I'm actually working on a, another one now that I've just started. But you know when you start a book that you're in it for the long haul. I'm actually working on one right now. And once you get started, it is a sojourn. You just go and you just kind of follow where the book takes you. That's right. There's no easy way. I mean, all of this talk about AI and so on. There's no easy way. AI will not, it, they will not replace us. It takes a year. <laughs> you just have to write every day. Do you write a certain number of words every day? How do you do it? To be it? honest, so I'm writing a nonfiction book and The way that I've kind of decided to do it is like, if I can do a chapter a month, then I will be able to kind of get there in about a year and a half. So I just decided to do a chapter a month. And so 
what I typically do, so I, I have time on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I write on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'm in the office. No one's bothering me. So I write on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And usually in about two weeks, I'm able to kind of write probably around 15 to 20 pages, usually. I mean, of course, you got to go back and edit it and rewrite it and all that kind of stuff. But that's kind of how my process is. But many people, they have different processes. It's, it's, yeah, because you're, you're multitasking like crazy, Lawrence. I mean, that's, that's You're doing wrong. it the right way. Am I? Oh, my gosh. Thank you for telling without me that. Any, Thank you no, for without any question. Anybody who sits around waiting for inspiration is never going to get a thing. It's never going to come. If you wait for inspiration, you will never write. You'll never do well, it. Well, you need to, uh, and especially with nonfiction, one usually writes to an outline, but you've got to sit down. You've got to have a plan. And also, the fact that you're writing a couple days a week and you set aside that time, that's absolutely essential. Thank you so much. I feel better now. I feel like I'm a real writer. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. So in your own writing, is there this heavy distinction? I mean, Dark Shadows keeps being praised for its always pure escapism. It didn't let the politics of the day get in there. But it seems like anything that you sit with long enough, especially if it's meditating on life and death and love and deep things like this, you end up wanting to put more of your brain into it. It's not purely escapist anymore. I'll tell you the interesting thing when you're writing. And I bet you've you've both had this experience. You write something and you think, where did that come from? How did I know that? Mm -hmm. But that's the interesting thing about writing. You're, You're unlocking things that you didn't realize you had inside you. I don't write for therapy, but I have to say writing is therapeutic. Very therapeutic. It absolutely is. And it's not the reason why I write. But you're exploring themes, ideas. You're creating your own world. That's the interesting thing about Dark Shadows. It's that Dan Curtis created a world and he just had an unerring instinct not to break that Mm. world that he created. You can write about any number of different kinds of paranormal characters. I wrote Dark Passages, which is kind of written with a wink and a nod to Dark Shadows. But I made the woman a vampire and part of a breed of vampires that the succession was passed through women. You create your own world. And as long as you stay within it and you don't do anything that takes you out of that world, you know, you can take other people on your <laughs> on your imaginative trip with you. Well, thanks so much for talking with us. My goal was to try to ask you questions that you've not been asked a bunch of times already. And I think we totally failed in that. I think. We- <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, let me reassure you. You've absolutely delved into some nice areas that I don't usually talk about. So I thank you for that. Well, I'm so happy this turned into a writing podcast. I mean, this that's what this low-key turned into, and I'm very happy about that. It's nice talking about Dark Shadows, but thank you so much for asking me about the things that I've done in the 57 years since then. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's right. Listen, I loved you in, in Dynasty in Dallas. I'm, I'm just going, particularly Dynasties. So I don't care about that Dark Shadows stuff. I love Dynasty. You were great in it. When I was pitched this interview, I thought about doing the whole thing about mime as pop culture. So you wriggled out of that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I wonder how many, how many uh, people listening have ever seen Marcel Marceau in performance, but he was an extraordinary man. It's probably know his story because of Jesse Eisenberg having played uh, Marcel Marceau in that film called Resistance. And it's because uh, Marcel, most notably his older brother, Alain, saved a lot of Jewish children in France as part of the resistance. Marcel was only 16 when he was doing that. But as I got to know the man, what is amazing is that his language, of course, his performance art was silence. But he was a linguist who spoke all of these languages. 
He was also an artist, wonderful sketches and paintings and so on. So I think that Ben really captured a lot of that in the, in the photographic essay that he did on Marceau. And it's a wonderful book. I mean, it's on, it's available on Amazon, but also I'm hoping that people will go to my website, katherineleescott.com, because there's a lot more there that maybe we can talk about another time. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Wonderful to meet you. Thanks for hanging out. Take care. I need to stop here and tell you about The Psychology Podcast with Scott Barry Kaufman, who's a cognitive scientist who writes and researches on intelligence, creativity, and human potential. Psychology Podcast will give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. In each episode, Scott explores the depths of human potential by talking to inspiring scientists, thinkers, and other self-actualized individuals. For example, Scott has interviewed renowned psychotherapist and author Esther Perel about love and relationships. He's also interviewed biologist David Sinclair about aging and longevity, and Amanda Knox about trauma. Listen to the Psychology Podcast now, wherever you get your podcasts. We were talking about the various things. We covered the movies a little bit, and I did see the second one as well that didn't have the vampire in it, which was okay. These movies in isolation, I'm not sure I would have been that excited about. I'm going to be um, honest with you. Like, the movies weren't very good. Like, I mean, they just weren't. Some people I mean, really was, swear by them that are fans of the, I mean, I've been listening to some of the podcasts. For me, and, it's the yeah, show. Sure. The show is, is the alpha and omega to me. The movies are fine if you want them, but they're not necessary watches for me. I, I really didn't like those movies very much. They almost felt to me like like a little bit of a behind the scenes or like a reimagining if you've mm-hmm. seen yeah, the show. Like I, I showed my wife the first movie and I was like, because she's never seen it. And I was like, here we go, babe. We're going we're gonna to dive on in with this. And 10 minutes in, I was like, this, is, this isn't the same. This is pretty different. But they almost ask you to already know a little bit about it, you know? Well, the pacing is bananas. I mean, because it's just like, I think I can help cure you. Oh, it's been a month. The next scene. Oh, there's been no attacks for a month. Thank you for curing me. Like, put some dramatic growth, you know, visible change in not just now it's the next year. I don't know. Very much seemed like a movie made by somebody who has only done soap opera TV. And that feels a lot like a lot more of telling instead of showing, which movies should personally, I think that movies should really rely heavily on the showing. It's a visual media, you know, Dude, like, it's movies. Of course, they should rely upon. No one likes voiceover. No one likes exactly like, exposition. Of course, they but, should. But it's just it. it's so funny to me that that's what the soap operas rely on is it's all the telling like very rarely in a soap will you get that kind of like deep movie experience of unpacking a scene, you know, it's just kind of interesting that they uh, turned that into a feature film. (laughs) You're mentioning the voiceovers, which were not in the show right away, but at some point it's just like, we're not going to make the audience think at all. We're not going to make it puzzling about what they're doing at all. Even if it was just, you got to get out of here or the vampire will eat you. Okay. So then the character who says that leaves, and the person who's still there then looks into the middle distance and a voiceover says, if I don't leave now, the vampire will eat me. That's not an exact, but there are things just as dumb as that. I think that actually might be a direct quote. I don't know. <laughs> I do think that show is trying to do something. It's not trying to challenge you. Like, it's not trying to challenge this audience. Like, that's not the point of that show. 
I think that we have to accept that show on its own merits. Like we have to accept that it is a show from the 1960s. We have to accept that there are pacing that's going to come from the 1960s. By today's standards, that's a terrible show. It just is by, by today's standards. But if you accept it on its own merits and accept what it's trying to do, it's a great show. There's a switch in our brain that you have to kind of turn off 2023 and turn on 1960. If you turn on 1960, you'll enjoy the show. Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch more of it. Like not at this pace, but I'm gonna keep going on it. It's not grueling. It's not one of those things where you're like, oh, let me get my popcorn and see what Barnabas is gonna be doing today. Like that's not the kind of show. But like if you're folding clothes, turn the fucking show on. It'll be great. If you're like drinking alcohol and want to like take a shot every few times something corny happens, it's a great show for that. But if you're like trying to find riveting television. This is not Breaking Bad. <laughs> it's not that. Now, the serialization of it all, I think, Mark, you said earlier, it's almost podcast-like. It's interesting because it, it definitely is. And you don't see that kind of serialization. I mean, I, there are still some soaps on, and there are some long-running shows that continue episode to episode. But Dark Shadows was really, I feel like, the quintessential, that is what it is. And you're going to sit down, and you're going to watch hundreds of these episodes. And... There's not going to be a whole lot from episode to episode that actually happens. But when you get there, it's incredibly satisfying. I do wonder this. Were there other soap operas? And we, we might be getting into the weeds here. Were there other soap operas like around then that are still around now? Because I feel like Dark Shadows like kind of created a template. Way. Uh, I feel like a lot of the all my children are general hospital. Maybe maybe those have gone off the air now, but like. As far as I know, some of those things were going for 50 years, or it's a very recent change that some of these are finally have been dying off in the last decade or two. That's just from the soap opera episode that I did, and I don't remember very well on what the current state of the of the form is. I remember watching soap operas quite a bit when I was, it was like in the 90s, and like there was like a demon possession subplot, and I think it was all of our children or days of our lives or something like that. I remember watching that with my, my grandmother or something like that. And so I see like a connection between what Dark Shadows did and those kind of shows, like just the serialization, the way that every episode leads to another, and like then there's like an arc, and I'm like, I mean, there's like a connection between those two. But it feels like Dark Shadows really did something with the form that made it kind of interesting and innovative. And it's not so much the horror elements, but just like the innovation of the form. As the horror elements came in, it was less, I felt like those early episodes, the whole episode might just be, I need to have a conversation with you. No, I don't want to have that conversation with you. We'll come in the other room and I'll have this conversation with you. Okay, let's go in the other room and have the conversation. And then they go in the other room and they have the conversation. The Ed, you know, and like they do that with a couple <laughs> different characters. And it was not quite so aggravating once the stuff started happening. You know, we haven't really talked about spoilers. Like, I'm glad that we haven't revealed any spoilers other than, you know, there is a vampire and stuff. And I think we can safely say, yes, there are other mystical, there's a witch and there's a werewolf and there's a Frankenstein. And, that you know, that this is not giving anything specifically away. But, like, I made the mistake of watching something on YouTube that was, I guess, supposed to catch me up to the Barnabas stuff. But I wanted to watch that. And it revealed there are really only about five things that happen in that whole 200 episodes to get to Barnabas. And if somebody reveals those to you, I was pissed about that. It was like, who killed Bill Malloy? <laughs> like, I don't want to know who killed Bill Malloy because that's at least something to keep watching for. Whereas now I know like there's a Frankenstein coming up and they've broadcast it, you know, for about 10 episodes 
where they show a part of an arm with stitching on it. And I've seen enough of clips of sort of later of the David Selby Wolfman character, like to have an idea of what happens to the rest of the show. I don't feel like general stuff like that is a spoiler, but yeah, I wouldn't want to have the specific. I'm irritated that the whole thing started on what is Victoria Winters' parentage and that they just seem to have forgotten about that. Yeah. They get back to it. <laughs> okay. It's um, the total, like the arcs that they go through in the show are just fascinating to me, especially like seeing the turn of the screw for the first time in Dark Shadows and then going on to read it, you know, the Henry James and watch like Haunting of Bly Manor, just like seeing these different, seeing the interpretation and then reading the source material and then going back and seeing other interpretations. Just fascinating with how they managed to not just draw on these inspirations, but to put them together in a serialized show with their own dedicated characters, not, and you have shows that try to do this today. You have like the haunting of Hill house and you have the haunting of blind manor. And I love those with a passion. My, some of my favorite media that that's come out recently, but you've also got things like American horror story, which kind of do a similar thing with the reuse of characters, the storylines that kind of connect, but doesn't really hit the same mark. So that's something that I just absolutely loved about the show. Like, You've got the Wolfman coming up and, you know, there's the whole crucible thing that happens in the 1700s. There's a whole Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde arc that's just like ridiculous to think back on, but it's so good. And I loved it. Yeah, I remember seeing when I first saw X-Files, I'm like, man, they're just recycling every, you know, legitimately good horror sci-fi mystery thing and making it one episode of this show, like this is going to be the big recycler. And I didn't realize that that was not a new thing. I, you know, made my peace with that. I enjoyed X-Files and American Horror Story. I liked the way you know, they just had a vampire arc and they, they used it to criticize Hollywood writing. And like, okay, that's kind of an interesting idea. Sure. An interesting take. And just the fact that it's all, I guess, you know, put in a blender. I guess that's what I've heard about Dark Shadows too, is it's not just that we're doing a vampire arc and a Frankenstein arc. It's that we're making them interact, which I guess they did in the MGM yeah, the Frankenstein meets the Wolfman or what, you know, that you, you had eventually one monster meets the other, but it's not the same as like these characters. It's also having watched Carolyn for a hundred plus episodes or whatever. If they do like what they did in the movie with her, which is basically turn her into a vampire and kill her off. Like, you know, you get protective of these people. Like you don't want, want them to be so messed up and transformed that they're just like have have lost their original arc. Absolutely. The great recycler thing that you talk about how like in X-Files and American Horror Story, even like Supernatural, you know, you go through oh, and yeah. it's like, oh, this is going to be the ep- the Exorcist episode, you know, and, and they do those like they have those episodes that you're going to have like the Texas Chainsaw, the it episode. And just that might have been the thing that Dark Shadows can stand on, not just the way that it combines the elements of horror into its own narrative, but that it might have actually been the first recycler. I'm trying to think, I'm racking my brain what could have come before it, but you're right. I mean, you have those MGM monster movies and yeah, you've got Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and Bride of Dracula and all that stuff. But like, I can't think of anything before Dark Shadows that really did that. We're going to go ahead and take these classic notions or literary pieces or movies or anything like that and then just let's just go ahead and throw it on into our our narrative that we have which you know if if that's the case and that's the first time that 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 happened that's a pretty big thing to stand on because we have so many of those now i never liked supernatural i never liked the x-files like is there something wrong with me because I'm, i'm like a big horror guy 
I never liked the X Files. I never liked so American Horror Story. I liked certain seasons of that, but like the one that you're talking about about the vampire. What season was that? Because I don't, even, I don't think I watched. It that. was one of the most recent ones, and the, its most notable thing is it has Macaulay Culkin in it. So, if you want to uh, see Macaulay Culkin as an adult, looking pretty much exactly like he did as a child, except maybe older. I should go back and watch the X Files or something. <laughs> like that. Maybe, maybe that's what it, I catch episodes of Supernatural like Charmed every now and then, like TNT. Those things are fucking horrible, man. Like I don't know how you guys like that. I, I haven't gotten into Supernatural myself, but I uh, Supernatural is another one. I may try to watch X Files though because I know a lot of people who loved the X Files. Like they loved that show. So maybe I'm missing out on something. I haven't even powered through Buffy all the way. Like I got stuck in season I heard people love Buffy too. Yeah, I heard but that's really another like one that. of those things that people slot into that. Let's finish up our our Dark Shadows stuff. The 1991. So Dan Curtis then goes on to make The Winds of War, which I remember as being this massively popular TV event. And there's actually a, a good, what is the name of the documentary 2019 I put in our list here? Master of Dark Shadows. So it's on Peacock, which talks about not only Dark Shadows, but the other stuff that Dan Curtis did. So he makes these two critically acclaimed series in the 80s that seem revolutionary for television, huge, big budget things. And then is sucked into doing another version of Dark Shadows, which only lasts for a season. I watched the first two episodes. It seemed okay. I didn't like some of the choices. I don't know if I'll return to it, but it does have a little baby Joseph Gordon-Levitt. So that's worth watching. Yes, it does. Creepy little Joseph (laughs) Gordon-Levitt playing David. And David should be a psychopath. That's how he starts in the show. And they just kind of forgot that he was a psychopath. And then his daddy loves him. And no, that's not the, it should be more messed up than this. He needs, he needs to be that creepy child, you know? The thing that I most remember that Dan Curtis did was Trilogy of Terror Part One. He did a part two, which is not as good. But that Trilogy of Terror, that shit was great. That was a, a legitimate, I think it was made for television, but it was a legitimately really good, like horror anthology movie. It was genuinely good. I really loved that. Like when I got into his filmography and I saw he did Dark Shadows and he did these the other Dark Shadows things and then he did like a Night Strangler like sequel something like that it's nothing great but that trilogy of terror it stands up against anything else it is a really good seventies I want to say nineteen seventy four nineteen seventy five horror movie and it's made for television it, it's one of those it's like Night of the Scarecrow if you know that movie like they don't make made for television movies like that anymore like the first it is like that or that George Romero, um, Stephen King vampire. It was a vampire. Uh, oh my gosh. It, it, Salem's it was, Lot. Are you talking Salem's about? Lot. That's it. Yeah. Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot. Like those kind of movies that you bring in a really good director. It's made for television, but you really invest in making it really, really good. It's one of those kind. It's so amazingly good. So much better than it has any right to be. This could disappear from network television for the most part. That kind of stuff seems almost ubiquitous that, you know, we're going to make a limited Netflix series that's five episodes or whatever. Like, that's what that is. They used to do those like around Easter. They would like show the Ten Commandments. It was like, it's amazing that they would like show these kind of movies like that because they were so incredibly good. Not like the cheesy knockoff Netflix stuff that they're doing these days. Like every now and then they'll have a good show or something like that. But it was like genuinely good. And they would bring in top notch directors for that kind of stuff. And they would tell really good stories. It was incredible what they were doing. Looking back on the 91 
Dark Shadows. I read something, and I'm not sure if it... I didn't fact check this, so I might be spreading fake news right now. But but the election was stolen. Yeah, Sorry, I read ahead. that the election was Listen, stolen. Trump, January Trump has made it completely okay for you to do all that. You Go for it. Yeah, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and... Uh, so I, I read that the reason that it was canceled, not because of low viewership or like critical scores, it was canceled because of Desert Storm. Because it really? was on... I can't remember which channel it was airing on, but it kept getting cut into by this new 24-hour news cycle that was just constantly airing footage. And so they weren't able to get their ad revenue from the show. And so a lot of TV shows that were on this, I think I want to say it was ABC, something like that. A lot of shows that were on during this time ended up getting the ax because they couldn't make money off of them and they'd already invested and it didn't make sense. While that could be fake news, I think it is the official line of the Dark Shadows people. Like I heard that in multiple interviews. I think Dan Curtis himself saying that's why it got shit canned so i mean i didn't dislike it you know i've, I've seen it i thought it was good it, they, it definitely moved at a faster pace than the original it had some interesting elements that they brought in i really enjoyed the first person barnabas view in the first episode you're walking in and it harkens back to the movie you know and it's you get that first person barnabas and he's coming in the new house at collinwood and he's introducing himself to carolyn and roger and just just so good I did not like the Willie Loomis as a disgusting, yeah, gross. Yeah, I don't know if you guys watched. So apparently, Dan Curtis before his death was also involved in the 2003 unaired pilot, but it's on YouTube, and that actually has Matt Cesarni. How do you freaking pronounce his name? He's a guy that then went on to be on one of the leads on The Good Wife and was one of the boyfriends in Gilmore Girls. You know, so he plays like the ex football star who then becomes the guy, the Willie Loomis character who digs up the vampire. I actually just watched that earlier and I have some interesting ideas about it. I thought it was, it was <laughs> I, I liked and hated it in a lot of different ways. It did not get greenlit. It wasn't enough for me to really judge, but it had freaking Jessica Chastain in it. So, wow. Yeah, it had um, a lot of really interesting choices with like the color palette, the lighting, just like the way that the pacing of it all, how many things were introduced in that first episode. I was just like, wow, they're really just going for it. They've got Angelique in that first episode, too, which is wild that they brought her into it because that's like that's a bit later. (laughs) Neither of these revival iterations had the subtlety that I would like. (laughs) I don't know. I want something where it's like the people who made Breaking Bad. I want that level of quality. That might just be asking for too much. You're asking for too much. But frankly, I've even, like, I watched some of the Pretty Little Liars at some point, which has a similar, it's a teen-oriented thing that has a similar creepiness. And is there supernatural stuff, or is it just, like, Scream? Or, you know, I don't know. But that had the sort of, we're going to tease the next thing. It had a certain subtlety to it that I did not see here. And maybe, uh, I forget the name of the guy. It's the person who is the showrunner or the writer for the show Revenge, which is something I've never seen. The person who is supposedly pitching the revival right now that was under consideration by CW and it got canceled as of 2020. But then, yeah, an interview from this year is our guest that we just had on. I will link folks to the saying that screenplay that that person wrote is still in play, you know, and is being shopped around and, you know, maybe so it just seems like it's a matter of time. And I will say if it actually gets made into a new show and that show doesn't totally stink, then I would be happy to watch the rest of the original show 
and re-meet with you guys in two years or whatever it is to, uh, you know, have a, a fuller treatment. I would love that. <laughs> oh, love it so much. <laughs> did, uh, did either of you guys get around to watch or listening to any of like the teleplays audiobook thing that they did? No, I didn't get a chance to. Just a tiny bit, and I wasn't interested enough to really... And you had told me that, like, well, this takes place after the final episode, and I don't want the details of the later part of the series ruined. That was sort of what ultimately made me not spend time on the extra stuff, because I had so much main canon to get through. Yeah, so I will say, no spoilers here, but they do a really great job. High production value, really... really? Yeah, a really interesting story elements. It's the original cast. They have David Selby. They've got Catherine Lee Scott. I can't remember uh, the actress who plays Angelique, but they have her back. How many episodes is it? Like, well, how long is it? I, I... So each one of them is about an hour long. You can get them on Audible. And I th- want to say there's probably around 12, 14, somewhere in there of these. Each of them is their own unique confined story, but they are serialized so that each one takes after it starts after the next one. And within each story, there's like four different chapters and it's got the dark shadows, the, you know, Uh in between to kind of cut it into chapters. So, you know, if you got to get your dark shadows fix and you got, you know, a long drive or a long commute, I'd say throw it on. It's fantastic. Really captures the original in, in a way that these other remakes just haven't really been able to. All right. And then we haven't really talked about the Johnny Depp movie, but the one thing to focus on is that the show is often described as camp, but everybody involved in it says, no, it's not camp. It actually took itself very seriously. Yes, they have bloopers and they have low budgets and things that look silly, but that doesn't actually make it camp. On the other hand, you know, one of the definitions of camp is like, is it appealing to the gay community? And some of these characters, their delivery, in fact, like three of the male leads are, were gay in real life. And Roger Collins, for one, is like very pre, you know, is not quite Paul Lind level, not quite what I just did there, but like is he's he's close. Is very. (laughs) Listen, listen, listen. Let's just cut across. Let's cut across the field here. Some people make things intending for it to be campy. Mm -hmm. Sure. Some people make things intending for it to be taken seriously, and it accidentally becomes campy. This is a campy fucking show. It is. (laughs) It just. It just is. Now, they didn't intend for it to be campy. They were making a serious show. But, yo, you watch that in 2023. You're watching slow fucking camp. That's what that is. It is really slow. It is really campy. And you know what? It seems like the people who have tried to, like, revive it or even what Tim Burton did with the film, he knows that's campy. And he's, like, really leaning into it. Now, he probably leans in a little bit too far. But the point is, is that it's campy and it's okay for it to be campy. It, like for something to be campy now is not a bad mark on it. Like it can be campy and simultaneously be very, very good. I think that Dark Shadows is a campy show that is very, very good, but it's okay for it to be campy because they're hamming it up, man. Like some of those actors are really going for it. Like they're really going for it with the voices. The props are kind of campy, like the special effects are kind of campy. The bloopers are campy. And I understand that they weren't trying to be campy, but yo, I mean, it is what it is at this point. And like, just lean in. Like, it's okay. Well, this was my way into the show. If you like Twin Peaks, I think you will like the show. Twin Peaks is definitely in that vein, except it's it's way more Lynchian, of course. So one thing with the camp factor and how Catherine was talking about the show the way that I experienced it, I realized when she was saying this, like what I watched it when I was around eight, nine years old. And it was before I really got into anything 
more serious in terms of like horror or even drama or anything like that. So it was kind of the thing that I had to base it on. And thinking back, before I started rewatching some stuff, I was like, man, there were some spooky moments in that. And then going back and watching, I was like, oh, this is campy as hell. And <laughs> it's it's almost like you have to do this like rectification where you appreciate the camp for what it is, but you also have this memory of it being terrifying when you're eight or nine years old. And, you know, you have Josette's deformed zombie corpse, like with the eyeball hanging out. And like seeing that for the first time at eight years old, I'm like, oh, whoa, what is that? What am I even looking at? Is that a ping pong ball? Like, you know, (laughs) it's something that's really hard to do. There's very few people that could do it and do it well. Mike Flanagan comes to mind, the way that he handled The Shining and... Dr. Sleep. Exactly. The way that he managed to combine those things and in this love of the movie and the novel and Dr. Sleep, you have these three different competing things. It's like, I don't know, I'd put it in his hands, but I know that the guy's busy, so. All right, well, this has been a very long episode, but thanks to both of you for coming. Sean, if you can stick around, I'll talk to you a little more about your own horror writing, and maybe we can trade a few more Dark Shadows tidbits, but I know, Lawrence, you have to take off. Thank you, I got listeners. a roll. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Good to meet you, Lawrence. Good to meet you, too, man. Take care. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty. Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm going to get you that budget just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit